0: Welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass Podcast. I am your host for this episode, Ryan Phillips, and I've got a great guest today, and I am really excited about it. He is the senior baseball writer at The Athletic. Uh, he has a new book called The Inside Game, which came out in April, and it, it's sitting on my nightstand, Keith, I promise. I'm, I'm about to get <laughs> to it. I expected to read way more during quarantine, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Um, and his, his former book, Smart Baseball, one of the best baseball books I've ever read. recommend you ch- check that out as well. We'll put links in the, uh, the link at the big lead we'll we'll add links to everything but uh he's Keith Law from the athletics so Keith thanks for joining us today really excited to talk to you thanks for having me and we talked a couple weeks ago this interview is going to be a little different but I will link to that in the post as well because I thought that was a really interesting interview it was uh you talked a lot about your decision to move the athletics we're gonna we're gonna go back and go through your career a little bit see how you got here uh and then we'll talk about you know the current issues with baseball and there are a lot of them and I want to get into them with you um my first premise when I do these and ask people who are in sports media about this is my premise starts with, I feel like everybody who's in sports media has to love sports or the sport they cover because you don't get into this business for fame, fortune, or whatever. That can come, but you have to love what you're doing in this business because a lot of it is really difficult. And so my question to you is specifically about baseball. How did you come to love baseball as a kid, as a kid? Uh, You know, when you were growing up, was it something in your household? Was there a player you loved, or was there a game you attended that just turned that love on? Because it's clear—I mean, reading the way you, you know, reading the way you write about baseball, you're incredibly passionate about it.
1: Uh, My parents were are still, uh, but when I was kid, especially diehard Yankee fans. Uh, My mother probably even more so than my father. My mother's uh, grandfather was such a Yankee fan that, and these were all Italian immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, he was such a Yankee fan that on his deathbed, he all he wanted was the Yankees score. And of course the Yankees were not only, they. You know, my parents grew up, grew up in the Bronx, so the Yankees were the Bronx team, but also they were the Italian team very much. A you know, mm-hmm. pretty significant portion of their roster in the 30s and 40s was uh, constant. Uh, comprised Italian Americans. And so there were two connections there and that just carried through. My parents had moved out to long Island before I was born, but remained Yankee fans. And so from as early as I can remember, certainly the Yankees were always on in the house. If there was yeah. a Yankee game going, and it's not like we, trust me, there would be Mets games on too. If that's all, if the Yankees were off that night or for whatever reason, you know, this is an era when all those games were on free over the air channel. So it was WPIX Channel 11 had the Yankees most of the time. WOR Channel 9 had the Mets. So the Yankees were the first choice. And I still have lots of memories from childhood of being outside in the backyard and we'd have uh, the ABC radio had them at the time uh, listening to uh, it was usually the same broadcasters too. So you'd get they would be going back right. and forth sometimes from TV to radio. So it was Frank Messer, Bill White, and of course Phil Rizzuto who um, I have very fond memories of listening to those guys. And my mom swears that I watched the seventy-seven, seventy-eight World Series with her. Oddly enough, I have lots of memories from being what I've been, four or five years old. I don't remember that. The earliest baseball memories I really have are from 81, from the strike season of all things, which oh, I've always wow. said. I mean, if, if that's your first memory and you're still with the sport, you must like it.
0: yeah you clearly have a deep abiding passion for it yes so you grew up a Yankees fan Mm -hmm. um did you have you had I I remember you telling me that Willie Randolph was your guy you loved Willie Randolph and um was there something about the way he played that you loved that that stood out to you
1: it was um you know one because relative to some of the other players he was a little smaller and he was faster. And although I was never any kind of athlete, um, obviously I was always small for my – relative to my peers. And the one thing I could do at all was I could generally run faster than most of the other kids. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would see that – you know, you just sort of gravitate to players who remind you something of yourself. Like It would be very – I loved watching Dave Winfield, but for he's 6'6". And I eventually (laughs) met Dave Winfield too. It's like, yeah, that's just a different kind of – an enormous – He's an he's enormous a, human being. <laughs> he's really big. It's funny because when he was playing, I never thought of him as like husky or anything. He was just tall. But of course, post-retirement, obviously he'd gotten a little bigger too. It's like, oh no, you're just large, like right. huge hands. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. We're just, I mean, I know we're the same, but we're not really the same. Yeah, right? Exactly. It's not, yeah. Um, also, I always thought Randolph, and, and this is probably a bit of my mother's influence too. Like He was a really patient, disciplined hitter that, so there was an approach. You could see him thinking. It was a more cerebral style, even though obviously he was a great athlete. He had a tremendous career, but that there was something more to his game on that kind of intellectual side. And that also attracted me because, again, wasn't the best athlete, certainly wasn't the strongest. So um, that I sort of connected with that a little bit more. I often favored players who a lot of the middle a lot of my favorite players to watch even on other teams they were middle infielders because they were the smaller faster guys yeah. it's hard for me to you know power hitters were fun of course i liked reggie jackson but i couldn't look at him and say i'm gonna be like that when i grow up nope right nope you could ask me when i was five i would have been like yeah i don't <laughs> i don't think that's how that works it's not gonna work out no um, i could look at you, my parents and say nope yeah. nope that's not in the genes <laughs> the
0: genes are just not there um did you have any inkling that you wanted to do something related to sports with your career when you were younger, like before college or anything like that? No,
1: nope. Um, would have been a pipe dream, you know? And plus also there was huge, I've talked about this in some other places, but as a kid who was a a good student,
0: um, you went to Harvard, you were a pretty good student. I
1: did okay. Right. (laughs) But then when you were, and I was tabbed as that kid from elementary school, I skipped a grade. I was everywhere I went. Like, all the teachers knew who I was. The administrators knew who I was. And it puts a weird, you know, then there's, 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 there's a, this expectation. Now you are going to succeed. You're going to go and do tremendous things. You're going to be, especially where, where I grew up, the environment in which I grew up, you're going to be a great doctor. You're going to be a lawyer. Or maybe you're going to go run for Congress or something. Like, the expectations were you, were you were going to do something big and professional mm-hmm. and lucrative. Um, and so, you know, once it was clear, I wasn't going to be a professional athlete of any, any sort, um, you know, I just always imagined I would do one of those things. I sort of ignored the part that none of those things really terribly appealed to me. I liked science. I did like science, but the path to a lucrative, successful professional career in the sciences was really to be a doctor. Like the idea of going to be an engineer and making millions and millions of dollars didn't really exist at the time. Mm. you know. Maybe if I were 10 years younger, that would have been the expectation. Oh, he's going to go write some program, found a company and make a billion. Um, So I just was always the kid who's, well, this is what people expect me to do. So that's what I do. I didn't take a lot of ownership over my own life and expectations until I was much, much older. And even then the baseball career was sort of an accident. Obviously I took to it, and I would like to think I at least made it into what it is. But the fact that it started at all was never a plan. And I do recognize I'm pretty fortunate to be where I am.
0: Yeah, I, I find that with a lot of people who got into it a little bit later, they just kind of, they explored a passion, you know, as a side project, and it wound up exploding. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so you go, to, you go to Harvard, just so you know, I went to Indiana, which is the Harvard of South Central Indiana. So I just wanted to let you know yeah. we're, on, we're both on that same right. There. Right. Um, so you go to Harvard, you, you major in, I think it was sociology and business. You get a degree mm-hmm. in that. And then you go to Carnegie Mellon, a very prestigious university and get a, uh, an MBA there. Mm-hmm. And, um, what were you doing from then until I know you worked at baseball prospectus in 1997, what were you doing in the interim?
1: So I, after college worked at a management consulting firm for a couple of years again, because that's what a lot of the kids were expected most of the to kids. Yeah. Right. And most of the kids, uh, most of my peers at Harvard, If you weren't going on to a graduate school immediately, you went to work for a management consulting firm or for an investment banking firm. Uh, If you went through the the sort of on-campus job process, obviously, there were people who, you know, they were working for a family business. They were returning to the country where they came from. But those of us who were from here, staying here, and just going to look for a job, those were the two most common jobs at the time. I'm sure that's different now. I talk to people who knew more about these jobs than I did, returning students. And when I heard the hours that the investment bankers worked, it was like, nope, eh, it's not for me. No, (laughs) not physically capable of working 100-hour weeks. I always find that's a little bit self-congratulatory. Anyway, I worked 110 hours this week. Uh, 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 Sure. Like, why? Yeah. (laughs) Are you proud of this? Yeah. Oh, I have so much money in the bank. Yeah. You're too fucking tired to spend it right where when do you have time to go out and do something with all this money that you're making?, it's right. great, but you're probably going to be exhausted and not terribly healthy by the time you're thirty and um, you know consulting seemed like a better balance of yeah, obviously those people have so people in those jobs there's travel, they do sometimes work long hours, but you have a little more balance between work and your outside life um, sure. so I did that for most of the three years between. Um, college and graduate school Uh, went to grad school for two years the prospective stuff and then freelancing for ESPN too at the same time it was just always on the side how did you how did you get that like where what was that like
0: how did you even did you just reach out and 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 offer to
1: the to Gary Huckabee one Mm -hmm. of the founders of the Prospectus group and uh and you were said, there right at the beginning of baseball prospectus too and yeah, there were some I was heavy hitters at that the place. sixth or seventh. So there were five in the original group and I think Dave Pease and I came on right afterwards. And I was trying to help them get a publishing deal for the book. It's like this is silly. You shouldn't be self-publishing a book. You know, back then self-publishing was a lot harder too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I feel like today it would be easier for them to just create, you know, self-publish on whatever platform and then let the publishers kind of come to you. It would be easier to self-publish and find an audience. Sure. So this book is too good. There's definitely more of an audience than you think, you know, go to Barnes and Noble uh, and find so many of these annual, you know, player preview books. And most of them weren't good. This is way better. It's better written and it's more intelligent. We should, there's gotta be an audience for this. And so eventually found a small publisher that just gave us, I think a little bit of credibility Um, and, along those lines, also wrote, also just started writing. Didn't really know what I was doing, but as with so many other things I've done in life, I would sort of say, yeah, I can do this. I can do this, and then just figured out how to do it. Um, And hopefully at some point in the 25 years between then and now have gotten a little bit better.
0: You figured it out, I think. I think we could say that. Um, So you start doing some stuff there. You start freelancing for ESPN, as you said, and then you kind of wind up working for the Blue Jays in Mm -hmm. 2002. How does that come about? Uh, I mean, how do you make that leap from from writing to actually working for a team? So
1: I had worked for a couple of startups, technology startups, after business school. Um, the first one was clearly going nowhere. Uh, the second one uh, had some promise, but they were starting to—they uh, just basically got beaten out by a competitor who's pro- who got their product out faster. Um, and you know, it's questions of whether that my employer's product ever actually worked—I have my doubts doesn't matter. They went, ended up going out of business, but I got a little severance when I was laid off, went to a third startup um, that did years later, eventually get purchased. And the small amount of equity I'd gotten paid, it was enough for me to actually completely pay for my move from Massachusetts, to Arizona at that point. So uh, that was kind of a nice windfall mm-hmm. for me. Um, but in the wake of 9-11, they'd let a couple people go. I was one of them. I was kind of okay with it. Um, because I couldn't stand the guy I was working for anyway and um, was working on some stuff for prospectus at the time and through contacts I'd had with Oakland um, you know I knew Billy Bean a little bit I knew Paul D. Podesta and Dave Forrest because they both went to the same college I did although we didn't know each other there at all but Paul and I overlapped for three years it's not at wow. all out of the question we were in the same classroom at some point Wow. Um, it's about 1600 kids each year at Harvard. So it's easy to be there with someone and not actually know them of course, yeah. or to like, there's definitely people where it's like, I know I saw you somewhere, but, but we never actually met, it. right? Yeah. There was a lot of that, you know, and, and plus there's always a handful of famous or semi-famous people there too. It's like, so those are the ones you definitely remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so through them, um, got in touch with J.P. O'Charty, who'd just gotten a job with Toronto, and he said, I need someone to do this stuff like Paul and Dave were doing for us in Oakland. And he didn't have anybody, but knew that Billy thought enough of me to have, you know, to maintain a professional relationship with me. And they wrecked Billy, and those other guys said to J.P., now you should hire Keith. He'd be able to do the type of type of work you're looking for. And It was so... You know, I walked in and there was nothing. There were good people there, but there wasn't anybody with any kind of of the technical skill to just like gather the data. I mean, that was the biggest part of my job was just getting the data. Now all that data is publicly. Now right. this college data on baseball reference. I'm like, really? Okay, fine. Yeah. Do you know how much time I spent writing and debugging Perl scripts to scrape this off of hundreds of individual college sites to get it all so that I could put it into a database so we could just... Even just sorting it was an accomplishment. Um, or JP, liked, he liked stuff printed out. So he'd want to know who was, you know, show me the leaders in college, you know, for on base percentage or any, any statistics. So I'd have to get it all into Excel and be able to print out the first couple of pages. And so, so much of my job was just gathering the data. And I will say- It's that all readily in, available now. It's, so much of it is readily available now. Now with the, what the folks in front offices are doing, obviously they're getting data from other sources, these TrackMan uh, or related systems, but also like what the college splits guys were doing it was um, I know they still sell their public site is not anymore, but they 're still still selling data to teams. We were just starting to try to do that when I left the Blue Jays. That was me with some help from some guys in the office where we were trying to go through game logs and gather and calculate things like ground ball rates or pull versus stops field percentages or strikes per, strikes thrown as a percentage of total pitches thrown. It's like that data is there. We just have to go through. It was again, a lot more work to be able to do it. And it would have taken me a long time to be able to get to the point where others who were better programmers eventually got to, but that just gives you a sense of where we were when I joined and where we were. And I left four 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 and a half years later. And it doesn't seem
0: like it was that long ago. It was 2002 and the, the world is completely different as far right. as gathering that data and things. Um, when you worked for the Blue Jays, what, what was your favorite part of the job? I mean, what, you know, I know that some people love that kind of work. Some people find it, you know, it's a, it's such a grind to be working for a team. Mm-hmm. Um, but what did you love about that job?
1: The draft, the, the, everything about the draft, uh, from seeing players myself—that's why where, where I started going out to see players and try to learn to evaluate them—to um, the particularly the draft room, the meeting, Even though we would like we would meet to death, it was like ten days of meetings leading up to mm-hmm. the draft, which I still think is too much. But that is, you know, I, I'm a I, I work pretty solo. Even now at the athletic, where I work more with colleagues uh, than I ever really have before. And a lot of that is because of the culture. Emma Spann is my editor, oversees all the um, national baseball coverage and she does a lot to sort of keep me in touch with other writers and make sure that I'm collaborating. Um, While I was at ESPN though, I pretty much operated on my own in everything. So the last time I really worked in a strong team environment was with the Blue Jays. And the biggest part of that was the draft where a bunch of us were together in a room, would be the scouting director, his number two, the cross-checkers, a VP or two, myself. Uh, for several days and then usually a couple of years we brought in all the area scouts for the last few days of meetings and we'd go through everybody every single player anybody had turned in as somebody worth drafting and often a few guys we said well they're not worth drafting but someone else is going to take him Um, just you have to be aware there's always a thing with you know brief tangent but there's you know one of the responsibilities of the area scout too is to say yeah i don't like this guy but here's our report he's going to get drafted in the third round you just have to be prepared it's one of the worst feelings, I think, for an area scout is to have some guy taken reasonably high in the draft, and you didn't even put in a report on him, because it seems like you didn't do your job. Your job right. was just to go see him and say yes or no. You could say no, but you have to have seen him and done the work. Um, so those discussions, and sometimes they were arguments over players were, I think I learned a ton from my colleagues, and they were always enjoyable and because the, obviously the players change every year too so the conversations may have some of the same elements but you're always talking about different players and I still maintain every player is ultimately unique um, mm-hmm. which is why I don't love doing player comps because I think you lose some of the unique elements of each individual player when you try to distill them down and say no this guy is just like that other guy but those conversations uh, then you and because it, it leads to something and then at the end of it you take the players and you never get every player you wanted, but you get some of them. And everyone always walks out of their draft room feeling like they just drafted eight big leaguers and we did have the best draft of everybody. And you know, I, would know, I would leave Toronto knowing, yeah, everybody feels this way, but I still like it. It still feels good. We did this thing as a team. Everybody did this together. We all contributed and we all walked out and we accomplished what we had set out to do. Well,
0: as a guy who's, I mean, I know, you know, as a side thing, you're a huge board game fan. It seems (laughs) the strategy of everything would really interest you and the, you know, where guys go and what are we going to do next? And then coming up with the solution as a group, it seems like that would fit your nature. I mean, knowing what I know about.
1: I loved trying to figure that out and understanding where is this guy going on the board and can we get this guy at the next, which is you're still relying on your area scouts more than anybody else. You know, what other? How many other clubs were interested? Did you see a lot of cross-checkers come in to see this player? Because that's an indicator. If a player is cross-checked, it can be an indicator that the team in question has him higher on their board, is considering him higher on their board. So we can float, hey, we really like that guy. Can we float him to our pick in the fourth round? Or do we have to take him in the third round if we think we're we really want this player? But wait, if we get to that third round pick, he's not actually the top guy remaining on our board. Would we be reaching down, passing over a superior player, to get this guy? Which to me is is much more of an emotional approach to drafting. And I know a lot of teams certainly used to do this. I still think there's some there are some who do this. But one reason teams, many teams have draft have uh, drifted to using a draft model where the you all the information is in this in a system Mm you know people say well the computer tells you who to draft computer i mean the computer doesn't know right it's taking all your scouting reports all your analytics reports distilling it down so you have a single ranking so the computer says this the program says according to your information this is the best player right now and you just do it right you just take that player which removes some of the emotion from the process obviously that system is only as good as the information that you're putting into it but it does let you does get you away from those my mentor in toronto tony Lakov always called them battlefield decisions you don't want to be deciding five minutes before your pick wait which guy are we taking no we just we you did this yeah. right we have a plan we we just spent 10 days talking about these guys take the top guy on the list and then that's it and so all that strategic stuff that you're talking about that all should have come before if you've right. done your job right that happened in the days leading up to the draft
0: so would you ever work for a team again do you think
1: I get asked that all the time. I never say never to anything because you just don't know what life's going to throw at you. Um, you know, when I was with the blue Jays, I thought I was going to stay with teams. I didn't think I'd stay with the blue Jays specifically because that doesn't happen, but right. I thought, I, no, nope, I'm on the team side. I'm going to stay here. And then after a couple of years, there, I, was like, I don't think I like this very much. Went to the writing side, but always thought, eh, maybe I'll end up back with a team again. I had friends there who were moving on to better jobs with other places. There's a lot of my colleagues there who've moved on to executive positions with other clubs. Um, I will say this though, uh, one, the longer I'm gone, it's been 14 years now. It's a little hard for me to imagine going back to a team environment. I think I'm a writer now. And also it would be very hard for me to achieve the same kind of work-life balance I have if I went back to a team. And one of the things I like about being a bit of a solo artist, um, you know, acknowledging that what I do at the athletic exists because of people like Emma and, um, you know, Tracy and Casey are two of my other editors there who like they make my work possible. I'm not actually a solo artist, but I have some more autonomy, more control over my schedule. And I'm able to be home more uh, with my partner and with our kids than I think I would be if I were on the team side. And as long as I have young kids here, I want to be here as much as physically here as much as possible for them. And I, I think this career path allows me to do that more than I would if I worked for a team.
0: And when you, so you leave the Blue Jays in, in 2006, how does the ESPN job come about? I know you've done some freelance work for them. Does the ESPN job come up and you leave the Blue Jays or did you leave the Blue Jays and then find the ESPN job?
1: I left the Blue Jays to go directly to ESPN. Okay. Um, At that point, that winter, I was like, I'm done with this environment. I did not think the, the, the front office culture at that moment was pretty bad. Um, And uh, then my wife at the time was pregnant and I looked at these two things. So I'm not really happy with the, this culture and knew there was a baby coming and I probably wanted more control over my schedule. And so I was talking to Dave Schoenfeld, who's still at ESPN, mm-hmm. who I'd known for years from when I'd freelanced for them before and said, him hey, thinking about leaving the Blue Jays, if there's a writing opportunity over there, let me know. Coincidentally, they were looking for somebody to do more or less what I ended up doing for them. Obviously, I reshaped the job a bit around my skill set once I got there, and they they were open to that. Uh, but it was definitely a right place, right time. They were just they were looking for somebody. They were looking for someone to do this kind of content uh, to get into the prospect space and just generally to write from a scouting perspective because they'd had success with folks writing about professional college football, as you know, that Scouts Inc company mm-hmm. that they'd acquired and they tried to keep that brand going for a while. So I, uh, it took a while for them to sort of get an actual job offer out in front of me, but they, uh, when they did, I took it immediately to leave. Um, so I went right from one to the next, which, you know, obviously with a baby on the way, I wasn't going to you choose unemployment temporarily if, you know, if I could just seamlessly transition from one job into the next one. So I became a dad and then 12 days later started a new job and was covering the draft immediately, which was, you know, maybe from a stress perspective, not the best choice, but it worked (laughs) out in the end.
0: Yeah, and it worked out well. You did 13 years there, and and uh, and moved to the Athletic uh, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And and as we talked about, you know, you had said that the reason you moved to the Athletic, uh, part of the reason was you wanted to expand your portfolio a bit, and not just be. I mean, you told me, I remember this quote. You said, "I don't want to just be a prospects guy. I want to mm-hmm. be able to to do more." And, um, I think it's interesting because I've read a lot of the stuff you've done at the athletic and and you have explored different topics. And I mean, my favorite that stands out is the exploration of Earl Weaver baseball, which was, (laughs) you know, I mean, do you want to do more stuff like that? I know this, we're going to talk about the CBA in a minute and the labor negotiations, which obviously you have a unique perspective on because you've worked in the business world. Um, Is that like the kind of material you want to do more, you know, just kind of off the wall, different topics um, outside of prospects.
1: I'm open to a lot of things. Actually, mm-hmm. I just wanted to do different things. Um, and it doesn't, it, you know, it could be more serious stuff uh, like you mentioned with the CBA and I I have written a couple of times now about my um, early contraction and realignment. I've written about what the changes to this year's draft, what the implications, broader implications might be for the industry as opposed to, Hey, it just affects these particular prospects. Um, you know, that stuff is more serious and requires a different kind of research and preparation than I've used for for years for the prospect articles, but then also more fun stuff, um, like writing about Earl Weaver baseball. I mean, you've, you know, you mentioned, obviously, I do a lot of writing about board games for Paste and Vulture and Ars Technica and basically anybody else will pay me to write about board games. I'm pretty... <laughs> I'm pretty easy when it comes to that, Um, and I write about food and books and movies and other things on my personal site because it just kind of I'm interested in lots of things. And if I think I have enough of a grounding in something to cover it credibly, I'm happy to do so. And anytime these things can intersect potentially with baseball, like I wrote about a Dodgers prospect uh, who uh, Brandon Lewis, who had was undrafted out of high school because he was his conditioning was not professional ready. He wasn't even ready for, like he didn't get really recruited by D1 schools. So he went to junior college and changed, really changed his lifestyle, uh, completely changed how he ate, which was the thing that got me interested in talking to him in the first place. And also really changed his uh, workout regimen. uh, And sort of to borrow his words, he really developed a workout regimen for the first Mm -hmm. time, dropped about 50 pounds and became a fourth round pick. And to me, that's, Hey, that's a good story. That's a human interest story, obviously, but it touches on something that I'm particularly interested in and think I can talk about, which is food and cooking. So mm-hmm. anytime those sort of interact with something I'm interested in, I had Ian Hap on my podcast a month ago. Was just was about to mention that. this. Yeah. So Connect Coffee Roasters, the coffee for COVID program, which they raised a couple grand for COVID related charities. And I like the coffee quite a bit. I've still got a little bit of it left, good as both as a pour over and as espresso, I might add. Um, I had him on to just talk coffee. I'm like, let's not talk baseball at all. You're probably sick of talking baseball. I'm sick of talking baseball. There's no games. So what are we even talking about? Let's just talk about coffee for 20 minutes. And he was great. He was absolutely great because he was passionate about it. Obviously I'm passionate about it. Get two people together who share an interest, even if it's nothing to do with the thing we actually do for a living, that can make a good conversation. And I will do that all day long. I find those um, I enjoy those conversations, and I figure if I'm enjoying it as a participant, there's a better chance that listeners would enjoy it or readers would enjoy it too.
0: Yeah, no, I've listened to the, to your show, the Keith Law Show, it's a podcast uh, from through the Athletic, and and it is interesting. You know, sometimes you you do talk baseball, but then you'll also talk music and and or I mean uh, movies and different topics, and it is interesting to hear you, somebody I identify so much with baseball, talking about other things and in realizing, you know, because when when you read someone long enough or you hear someone long enough, you think that's their only interest, you know, right. and then you, you, you see this other stuff. So it, it has been really fascinating to sort of follow that and, and check those out. I really enjoy the podcast so far. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And, and I think it's great that you're doing it too, that you've got like that outlet. Um, We're going to get into the serious stuff now. And and the big one for for everybody is the the collective bargaining agreement negotiations in Major League Baseball. The current CBA runs out December 1st, 2021. Um, This feels like the negotiations for the 2020 season, as we talked about before we went on air, it feels like the opening salvo in those negotiations. What are the big sticking points going to be on that for you and, and how ugly do you think this is going to get?
1: I interpret the, a lot of the enmity in the current negotiations as a harbinger of what's to come next year. And I also look at the way MLB approached those negotiations with minor league baseball for the re- revisions to the professional agreement between the majors and the minors, um, the way they've approached negotiations with the umpires union. They are trying to signal – that they're taking, going to take a hard line and be resolute and dis, uh, display what folks who've studied anything in negotiations um, know as credible commitment. In other words, uh, you, to, to prove that you will, if you say you're going to do something, that you will actually follow through. I've given the example recently, Scott Boris, often in the draft, will have one prospect who will be drafted high who won't sign. Um, he'll hold to a particularly high dollar figure and probably knows he won't get it. And then that player doesn't sign usually goes back to college or goes to college. And you know, obviously you hope that like JT Ginn, didn't sign a couple of two years ago, went to college, even though he got hurt, I think he's still going to get paid reasonably well because he was the second round pick of the Mets this year. That Boris doing that almost every year, many years makes his, when he says in the future, you give us this money or we're not signing. It's credible. People know that he will do it. I think Major League Baseball is – not that Scott invented it. He's just really good at it. Major League Baseball is taking that strategy, though, and saying, no, we're, we're going to hold firm. We're willing to lose the whole 2020 season to get what we want in these negotiations, and then they could potentially carry that forward to the CBA negotiations next year and try to use the threat maybe of further work stoppages to get the players to offer more concessions in the negotiations I will say, though, I think the players are better organized, more resolute, more aware this time around. There are many players who realize that the deal they struck in the last CBA negotiations got them short-term benefits and long-term losses. They were worse off, I think, in the long term for that deal. They gave away more than they got. And there's a recognition of that and that they don't want to repeat that mistake. So I expect the negotiations to be pretty acrimonious next year. Uh, And if we don't get a 2020 season, then I think that's a a particularly bad sign for the next CBA negotiations. It says that if they couldn't even come to an agreement over this, it's going to be much worse next time around.
0: Yeah, that seems to be the prevailing theory. Uh, Do you know, I mean, do we know yet what the hardline sticking points are uh, uh, for that deal? I mean, I know they haven't really started hashing it out yet, but do we have a projection of
1: what each side wants that they won't budge on? Not, I don't think I know. Pe- there may be people who know. Uh, my conversations with both sides have been so particularly focused on, um, you know, the minor leagues or, um, you know, anything specific to the shutdown this year and the changes to the draft. That I have not had those conversations with sources on either side about. Okay, what are you? What are you looking at in the next CBA negotiation? I will. Um, Probably once I don't plan to have those conversations until we resolve what's happening with this season because they're busy, sure. right? Yeah, but yeah, I would like to know because they're always obviously owner. We know what owners want, they always want to spend less money. The owners are simple, um, they want to spend less everywhere. They want if the owners could get a hard salary cap, they'd be thrilled. They would love to see um, reductions in how much they're spending in the draft. They got a hard cap on international free agency, um, the international amateurs, pretty much everyone believes that there's just going to be an international draft going forward, which kind of sucks for the players, but would also clean up a lot of the problems down there. There was a good USA Today article that appeared this week about uh, some of the, uh, frankly, exploitative practices that go on, particularly in the Dominican Republic. Um, you know, Either side can walk away from a deal. A 12-year-old player, his representatives can agree to a verbal uh, verbally agree to a contract with a major league team that can't be signed until the player's 16, either side can walk away. They can walk away a day before the signing period opened. That's happened. I know of at least one player who walked away from about 4 million with one team because he could get more from another team. It happens. Uh, a draft would get rid of that, but I think in the end it's going to end up with less money flowing to those players. So I think all the owners want across the board, it's going to be things like that. How do we pay major leaguers less? How do we play draft pay drafted players less? How do we pay international free agents less? The players last time around really focused on quality of life issues. um, And I think that's why they ended up giving back more than they should have in terms of total compensation. And my guess, and this is really just an educated guess is that they're going to go into this and say, no, the, the pie is large. We want to increase our percentage of it. We want more of the spoils baseball until this year, at least, uh, had been growing pretty significantly, at least at the top line, and players want a higher share of that. Whether they will choose to make that the focus of the next negotiation, though, I don't know. Got it.
0: Speaking of the draft a little bit, what did you think of the draft this time with only five rounds and then the $20,000 cap on undrafted free agents? It was really odd. I felt like the, you know, the actual five rounds of the draft felt pretty normal. But Mm -hmm. I felt like the rest, you know, the whole lead up to it and everything like that was a little odd. What were your takeaways from this year's draft?
1: So I I have such mixed feelings because ultimately the, the biggest message for me, for fans, that I would give to fans is we lost some players, right? There were good players out there who weren't drafted because the draft was too short. There were also good players out there who weren't drafted because they wanted more money than teams were willing to spend. And that's fine. That's the player's prerogative. Um, Does Tommy Mace at the University of Florida typically get drafted in a typical year and get paid something close to what he was supposedly asking for? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, Put him in the pile of players who were uh, particularly screwed, not so much by the shortened draft, but just by the lack of a spring. I do think, um, however, there are arguments I had. When I talked when they first proposed shortening the draft, period, I talked to some front office execs, uh, scouting and otherwise, and many of them said we're kind of okay with a shorter draft. I don't know anybody actually wanted five rounds, but one in particular said the industry just drafts better anyway. So you know that thirty-second rounder who becomes a big leaguer—they're um, pretty uncommon now. We don't miss those guys or right. draft them so late as we used to. There are still some, but there are not as many as there used to be, and and particularly for college players because we have so much data on them it's really hard to miss those guys completely. You know, my counter argument is, yeah, okay, that's fine, but that guy might be an eighth rounder, and we didn't have an eighth round this year. So give me back 10 rounds, give me 12 rounds, 15 rounds, something like that. It doesn't have to be, I mean, I think 20 at the outside is probably the most we need, and my guess is if a draft in the future will have – we'll just have fewer rounds. We're not going to see a 40 round draft again. And I'm fine with that. I will also say entirely selfishly, it was kind of nice that the draft was done after five rounds. And I could say there's 161 players. I think it was, and I can say a sentence or two on just about all of them and be done. I was done with my draft coverage so much sooner than ever before. You know, about 10 of those players were senior signs who just, I didn't need to say anything about because they were clearly there just to save money. But otherwise it was kind of nice to be done sooner and to have to worry about fewer players this year. There's, there's a happy medium somewhere there. Maybe it's a 10 round draft and um, you know, that gets most of the players that we need that should be drafted. Most of those guys get picked um, in a typical spring. I mean, where everyone's getting scouted to, I don't know what the exact right number is. It's more than five. It's less than 40. Gotcha.
0: Well, I loved your draft coverage. I, I, it was interesting that it was out right away, too. You know, Your, your analysis was out right away. And, and um, the two guys at the top that you had on your top 100 were, were Austin Martin and Spencer Torkelson. You had <laughs> Martin number one. A lot of people had Torkelson number one. It was you know really kind of a pick em. Um What did you love about Martin's game, to, to put him number one? I know he fell a little bit further than some thought he would.
1: Uh, there are two things that I think really set him apart from Torkelson. Um, one is just positional value. Martin's a third baseman. who's played some short. I believe the Blue Jays actually listed him as a shortstop, drafted him as a shortstop. They're going to send him out as a shortstop. Uh, He could probably, I mean, he could almost certainly play second base. He's played a little center field. Uh, He's going to play a skill position somewhere. Whereas Torkelson isn't. Torkelson's a first baseman who maybe can play left field. Now the Tigers listed him as a third baseman. If Torkelson ever got to even average defense at third, I'd be shocked. Uh, he's going to end up at first or in left. That's fine. Obviously, he could be a really good big leaguer at those positions, but Martin just starts with a higher baseline. He is going to play a skill position. He's probably going to play it pretty well. So already, before you even consider the value of his offense, base running, whatever, he's already sort of starting ahead of Torkelson in terms of the value of his position and the value he's going to provide with his defense. Uh, He's also just got a Better hit tool and a better track record of hitting. I'm just purely hitting, he's very difficult to strike out. Despite playing in the best conference in all of Division One, he's faced better competition than Torkelson. hasn't had the advantage of playing at a little bit of altitude as Torkelson has, and has electric bat speed to back it up too. Torkelson's a good hitter, I think Torkelson's an above got an above average hit tool, but Austin Martin has a clearly plus hit tool right now and has demonstrated it in terms of his performance as well as showing it showing the sort of scouting tools that we would expect to see from somebody who you say has a plus hit tool so to me i just think there's a much higher floor there because of all those factors and he still offers a lot of ceiling because he's making a ton of contact and he's hitting the ball hard and there's a chance he ends up somewhere maybe at third base given time he becomes an elite defender there i certainly wouldn't put that past him so i see both guys having a path to start him Whereas Martin just starts out with a higher floor because of position, bat speed, athleticism, and track record of just never striking out and and making really hard contact on a pretty consistent basis. Now
0: Torkelson's a guy who really jumped on the scene as a freshman, hit a ton Mm -hmm. of home runs his freshman year, and then followed that up at the Cape with a good season, uh, you know, with some power. Uh, Is he just, I mean, I know that, that, he's more than just a power guy, but is that what t- people got intoxicated by to take him? Because he was universally selected. It looked like in mock drafts, oh, he's going number one. It, yeah. Do you think it was the power that just got, that that got everybody
1: loving him? I think it's two things. One, I mean, one of the power is what got him on the, on the scene in the first place. Uh, and, and he has real power. And he also played in, in Arizona, in their state—I mean, Arizona State's in Tempe. The stadium's actually in Phoenix. Whatever. It's a thousand plus feet above sea level, so he gets a little boost from that. Also, he was famous for three years, and I think that that's a huge factor. I mean, I wrote about this a bit in my book. When a guy is that well known, if you're the Tigers and you're picking first, imagine the internal pressure to take the guy everyone's assumed assumed you were going to take for whatever, three years, um, two years, whatever. like That guy was assumed to be the number one pick. I always say, nope, don't assume that, don't assume that, don't assume that changes. Bryce Terang was supposed to be the number one pick in his draft year. That didn't work out. Byron Buxton, who I loved, was supposed to be the number one pick. He wasn't the number one pick. He's turned into a nice big leader. Carlos Correa was number one. He's turned into a better one. Mm. So those assumptions are often wrong anyway, but people in the industry especially have a very hard time with that, and I think it's a pretty human failing is that – you don't want to be the one who didn't take the obvious, obvious air quotes guy, and then um, and then turn out you made a mistake. What if the Tigers took Austin Martin and Spencer Torkelson turns out to be the the best big leaguer from the draft or the better choice of the two? It's like why didn't you take the famous guy He was right there in front of you? Yeah, that's a tough question to answer. People who look forward and think about that, it's like, let's not screw this up. Like don't let's not overthink this. Take the famous guy. And for the record, I think they took a really good player. I just would have taken the other guy first.
0: Yeah, it's there is something about that with conventional wisdom, and you see it a lot with quarterbacks in the NFL. Everybody takes the top quarterback number one, and a lot of times it doesn't work out. Yep. Um, you know, it, it's an interesting approach, and I think it's interesting that you said that that they took the famous guy and they took the guy that everybody knew. Um, well, Keith, thank you so much for joining us. It's always great talking to you. This is our second long conversation and (laughs) I've enjoyed both of them thoroughly. And and I want to do it again, eventually, um, everybody out there, go check out the inside game. Uh, I bought it. I've got it. I, I promise, Keith, by the next time we talk, I will have read it. Uh, it. It's it's great. And Smart Baseball, his first book was great. You can check everything out that Keith has written at The Athletic. We will put the link on the website. Um, I really appreciate this, Keith. You are, you are a great guy to have a, a conversation about baseball with. So thanks for joining us
1: today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Stay safe. All right, you too, Keith.